this weekend was pretty much uh, Nirvana for the, for the College Hoops fan. Four games in 24 hours between top 10 opponents. We learned Speak a lot. yourself, Nirvana. <laughs> Sorry, Brad. Yes, I, I apologize. The Friars lost. It stunk. That being said. I mean, not even the, that. Like, from, like, what, Wednesday on, it was like every bubble team was just picking up huge wins. Like, Boise State won at New Mexico. Nebraska beat Wisconsin. Butler won at Creighton. Washington State won at Washington. It was like every single one. Bing, bing, bing. All these wins. And then it's like, well, that's okay, because Providence is going to get a Q1 road win at Villanova. Not so fast. Couldn't even break 20 points at halftime. Anyway, continue. Yes, not a great weekend for the bubble, but great weekend to sit back, bet on some games over at BovadaSportsBook.com. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I watched a ton of ball. I went up to, I think I had like the ideal weekend setup in that I went, I stayed home and watched the three games on Saturday. Uh, and then Sunday went to the more standalone of the games with, with Wisconsin-Purdue. That was high-level stuff. Uh, Purdue finding a way to win, despite probably not playing their best. I thought Wisconsin was very good. Just didn't make enough shots. It was a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, we, we got a lot to get to because of that. Um, we are recording on a Tuesday night, so it's a little more hectic. We try to record Sunday nights and Monday nights because it's a lot quieter on the slate. But schedules are what schedules are. And so here we are recording in the midst of a bunch of different games. So uh, we may have some live reactions in our last, I think last week was the, um, last week or two weeks ago is Houston versus Texas. And we were like, eh, Houston's blowing them out. And at the end of the pod, it's like, oh, Texas is winning. And it turned out that Houston won the game. So uh, if you enjoy those reactions, uh, those, those incidental reactions, you are, you are in luck. Um, but Brad, I guess, well, maybe this is, you know, 30,000 foot question, but like, if you learned one thing or had one biggest takeaway from last week in college basketball, what was it? We can start there. I'd say the resilience of I I guess we'll say like don't don't count your chickens. Right? We were talking before the show after that Clemson Georgia Tech game. I was like, "All right. I I I see why Clemson's still super high in the brackets and everything." But they're done. They're going to lose their way out of this. Not, not so fast. They get a, a huge road win at UNC. There was Boise State and, um, to a lesser extent, Alabama that lost so many games early on. And you kind of, like, okay, I still believe in Alabama, but they're not an elite team. Okay, maybe Boise State's not going to make the tournament this year. They're both rolling now. Half the Big 12, right? Um, Texas, Cincinnati are, are back alive. And then South Carolina, who we just kind of wrote off just because the roster was underwhelming in the preseason. They are 20-3 and three right now. They are on a roll. Um, so I guess it's, yeah, don't, don't count your chickens is my takeaway. A lot of these teams have weathered midseason swoons and are rolling now. So let's talk South Carolina first because they're probably the biggest story in the sport. Maybe not the most like exciting story in the sport, but just like big picture, I think it is almost beyond comprehension that they are where they are. I mean, I thought in the preseason when they were like 60th in Ken Palm, it was like that's ridiculous. Like, you know, you should 
do whatever you can to, to fade them. Like they were on my list. I had put out a list every year and you know, maybe it makes the, uh, makes the sports books, you know, Bovada and whatnot unhappy, but I, I give out the teams that I think that are going to be least are, are most and uh, most undervalued and most overvalued by the sports books. And, uh, that was South Carolina for me. Like I thought this was this, I did not think this was a top 100 team in the preseason. And here they are at 20 and three. And, I had kind of eaten my shoe, at least in terms of like, they don't suck in December. Like I thought that they had kind of proven like, all right, they're going to be feisty enough. You know, they're probably going to be like an IT type team. But I mean, here we are now with a win over Kentucky. Yes, Kentucky has struggled since. A win at Tennessee. And now, you know, even just like the hold serve type wins, the win on the road at Georgia, the home win here this evening uh, before we recorded against Ole Miss. Like, they have asserted themselves in a major way. And look, I don't think they can win the SEC, but I mean, they're a surefire tournament team. I think they're in very good shape to wear home colors in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Um, and there is no, I, I don't know that there's like a, a major takeaway here, right? Like I think, I think both of us, when we're wrong about stuff, we try to be like, okay, like what did we miss? And I think with this team, like, I don't know that like I would say here's the big thing that we we didn't see coming right like Michi Johnson's been better than I think we would have thought he would be this year um BJ Mack's been a good transfer Colin Murray Boyles has made an immediate impact but this feels kind of like the classic team and it feels like there's a couple of them every year where the hole is just so far much so so far and away greater than the sum of the parts uh, they fit together. They get build some buy-in early in, in terms of, you know, win some big games, start to believe. And then, you know, from there, it's just off to the races. And, and that's where they are at 20 and three. You know, you would think that, you know, down the stretch, they'll take some losses. But, I mean, what an incredible story this is from one of the worst teams in high major basketball, just completely non-competitive at times, to um, a, a very strong NCAA tournament team in a year's time. I mean, you stumbled upon this in the offseason, so... That's why they were so high in Kempom. Uh, it's because when you took Gigi Jackson off the team, they were had like a 20 net rating, right? They were like 20, or, or no, they were 20 points better without Gigi Jackson. So I'm sure that's what the analytical models were picking up on. Um, you you had a tweet in, in the off season that showed the hoop lens, right, or, or the hoop explorer. Yes. Um, and we joked that hey, maybe South Carolina is going to be really good, right? I I think if you went back and listened to our SEC preview, the only positives we gave, I bet, were tied to that stat that you dug up. It was like, um, yeah, well, at least Gigi Jackson's not there anymore. And you know this, you know, by, by the looks of it, I wouldn't expect that they had a lot of NIL to work with. Um, but it's just getting the right transfers. Like I, I remember making fun of Taylon Cooper. Going from a terrible Minnesota team to a terrible South Carolina team, um, but he's been great as a starting point guard on a very good South Carolina team. And with Cooper Studi, who wanted to play on the wing, right? Mac, um, and then Murray Boyles, with the returners Josh Gray and Michi Johnson and then Jacoby Wright. It's it's been the uh, it's been the right formula. Yeah, I mean they've got they've got shooting. Um... The fit between Johnson and Cooper has been really good because Cooper's problem is that he can't really do anything except play in the ball screen, right? So 
you give him an, a two guard in Johnson, who's who's been forced to play point guard most of his career because he's a little undersized. But you say Michi can go score and try to get in the lane. Cooper, you can just shoot threes and distribute and play and play the ball screen. You got Studi on the wing as a shooter. BJ Max, a really good pick and pop big. And defensively, they've just been so sound, right? Like there's nothing that pops defensively with them. Like the the personnel wise is like personnel wise, I don't think this is anything special on the defensive end of the floor. Um, but like they've just found a way to defend. They did a great job against Kentucky, held them to 62, did a great job against Tennessee, held them to 59, kept Ole Miss under 70 today. Like they have not given up 70 points. And again, obviously pace is a big part of this. They played you know, one of the slowest tempos in the country. They have not given up 70 points since January 16th and have only given up 70 points twice all or three times all season, all season, excuse me. So just a remarkable, remarkable turnaround. Lamont Paris, there's a lot of credit. Look, I, I don't know what like the long-term outlook here is like, will this be re- replicable? But I do know he is, uh, I have, I've lost a lot of money betting against them, uh, on Bovada this season. And, uh, I, I I I guess you know I, I honestly think he should be in the national coach of the year conversation. And I I think every time I've turned them on, Josh Gray's been in the game because he's only averaging nine minutes a game. I think I've seen all all what sixty or eighty one of those uh, SEC minutes. Um, but yeah, B, BJ Max been really good. Murray Boyle Murray Boyles had had a great game today. The, the fit is great. And as you said, is this replicable? Doesn't look like they have a ton of NIL by this roster, but it's a big state school. Maybe this will inspire more uh, more money to come in for for the future. Um. All right, let's continue on. I actually would like to stay in the SEC here, Brad, because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff when you look throughout this conference. Um, one is a team that you mentioned uh, in your your run up there of, of kind of not counting teams out, Alabama. So, look, I don't know that Alabama can win the national championship. I think I I, I preface all of this by saying that because I think last year's Alabama team was incredibly it, last year's Alabama team was incredibly more built to win the national championship. Brandon Miller. You see what he's doing in the NBA right now. I think he said like 20 points in five straight games. Like he was unbelievable. He could create his own shot. They had more size, more rim protection. They had everything from an ingredient standpoint. This team is not necessarily built the same. That being said, the fact that Alabama sits here today at 16 and six, leading the SEC by a game, fresh off blowing the doors off of Mississippi State, is so unbelievably impressive given what they lost this offseason. Not only did Alabama lose Brandon Miller, Noah Clowney, Charles Bediaco, Namari Burnett, Jaden Bradley. Um, Javon Quinterly. Javon Quinterly, right? Like 80% of their rotation. Not only did they lose that, but they lost all three of their assistant coaches. I mean, they were operating incredibly shorthanded. And NATO somehow built a roster that is competitive. 
he got everyone up to speed. And they've gotten better as the season gone on. I mean, look, early in the season, as you said, the defense was an issue. Um, they gave up, you know, 92 to Ohio State. That loss looks worse and worse. Um, you know, got, you know, could, could not stop anyone. Couldn't stop Arizona, couldn't stop Creighton, couldn't stop Purdue. They have really turned it and deserve a ton of credit. I mean, look, I don't know if they're going to finish the job, but like, think about this. Alabama is in a position to potentially win the SEC three out of four seasons. Alabama. Like, that's crazy. Like, like, think about how, un- and, and and I don't know what it is about Nate Oates that he doesn't get the same level of, like, respect, credit, et cetera. But, like, think about, like, 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 like how is this not equally to not, if not more impressive than, like, what Chris Beard accomplished at, um, like, how is this not what Chris Beard accomplished at Texas Tech? How is this not like how is this not seen as like one of the great coaching jobs of our generation? That he has turned Alabama into a basketball superpower. Well, I mean, and so look, they have three coaches in that conference that are doing similar stuff, right? With Oates, Musselman, and Pearl. Now, Arkansas had the the past history, but ha- had a long period of kind of dormancy, but they didn't make the Sweet 16 for X amount of years. And it seems like all three of those guys don't get the credit that they deserve. I think you would have said Musselman got the most credit of the three, but after one bad year, he's either thinks he's going to get run out of town or is being run out of town. Um, and then Bruce Pearl, I think, is the most underrated coach in the country. Um, he, he's done the same thing that Nate Oates did, um, but at a worse job, you'd say. And they've made it farther in the tournament, and they keep reloading year after year um i do wonder if part of this is the nil stuff obviously that's recent but i do wonder if there's a level of like oh they don't get as much credit because they're not the one that has to do all the grunt work building the roster and look i know nate has to go to a final four he's been to two 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 sweet 16s both times he's lost to the team that eventually won their region. Uh, UCLA, obviously, in 21, and then in 23 to San Diego State, who went to the national championship game. They have to break through and do that. And I don't know that this team is the one to do it because, you know, they are so three-point reliant. They aren't as good defensively, right? Like, like I do think last year's team was just more traditionally built to be really good. That being said, like, I just, I just think it's – I just think it's wild that they are where they are. I mean, this even ignoring, like, SEC championships. Like Alabama is going to be a top 10 Ken Palm finisher in three out of four seasons. Guess how many top 10 Ken Palm finishes Alabama had before Nate Oates? Zero. Zero. Guess how many times Alabama had made the NCAA tournament in the last decade before Nate Oates got there? Two. Colin Sexton on the buzzer beater in the SEC tournament was one. Correct. Lost maybe one of the Jamichael games. Green teams was another one, maybe? Oh. 2012 Alabama with Jamichael Green, Tony Mitchell, Trevor Relaford, Trevor Lacey. That was Anthony Grant, right, coach? Correct. Yes, that was the only AG tournament team. Uh, so, yeah, look, I, I don't – I don't know. Like, 
I, I don't know if this is like a Alabama. We, like we should be pushing Nate Oates for Louisville or pushing Nate Oates. For, I don't even know if he would take those jobs. Like, and people get so wrapped up with the history when, like, the president's like Alabama's a huge state school. They've got oodles of money. They're pulling in recruits. They're in one of the two stable conferences in, in all of college sports. You you could build a championship team here, no problem. I agree with that. I think that to me that would be my thing. Is I think I would look at Alabama. I think the one thing I would say that Nate Oates has made clear he wants is Nate Oates wants a new arena at Alabama. He feels like they don't have the home court advantage. And, you know, something like Auburn has or Baylor's new arena, right? I think if they can pull that off for him, I think he will stay at Alabama forever. If not, maybe Michigan State, right? But um, And then I wanted to touch on staying in the SEC. Ole Miss. If I can find where I put Put my phone down and pull up their T rank. Oh, I got it. Um, <clears throat> because looking at their schedule last week, they had a ton of opportunities to move the needle. Um, but a lot of their tougher games were at home, which provides a good opportunity, but also, right? So, all right, pulling this up. They, they get Alabama at home. They get South Carolina and Texas A&M at home. So there's only really one home game that you're going to be underdogs in. Um, and then they have Missouri at home as well. So, so they can get three out of those four, you'd say. Uh, the road games, Kentucky, Mississippi State, Georgia, and Missouri. So, I mean, if they got two of those road games, they're probably okay. The poor metrics are getting better by the day. Um, but that's an interesting contrast to a team like Nebraska, which is going to close their their season with seven games against non-tournament teams, whereas an Ole Miss has more opportunity but also more chances to screw it up. So I think there's like a bigger picture point here with Ole Miss, and I think it may bring us to um. You know, a league as a whole in the Big 12, because I think Ole Miss's resume is very comparable to some of these Big 12 teams. They played such a bad schedule and they found a way to win the games they were supposed to win that now. If they can just kind of hold serve and just just like hang on, win the home games, win the games you're supposed to win, just like Ole Miss did where they beat, you know, Arkansas at home and AM on the road and Mississippi State. Like, you know, they won games like that. Like, I think, like, I don't see how we're leaving Ole Miss at nine and nine in the SEC, 22 and nine overall out of the term. Like, that just doesn't feel right. Just like, you know, and I'm going to go to the, the Big 12 and I'm going to look at, you know, all these teams, right? So Cincinnati is a prominent one. Texas is a prominent one. I think Kansas State gets into this conversation as well. Kansas State, I think, stinks. The metrics say they pretty much stink. They're 72nd in Ken Palm. They're not very good. But Kansas State is 5-5 five and five in the league. If Kansas State can get to 8-10 and 10 even, 
if Kansas State, that would require them to beat two more good teams because seven of their final eight games are BYU, TCU, Texas, BYU, Cincinnati, Kansas, and Iowa State. So top 30 teams. Like, I, I truly think if Kansas State wins three games the rest of the way at 18 and 13 or 19 and 12, if they can win, win one more, they're going to be a tournament team because they just did their non-conference stuff. They beat Central Arkansas and they beat Oral Roberts and they beat Northern North Alabama. And they have like two semi-substantive non-conference wins in Villanova and Providence. And like, that's going to be enough. I, I like, I really believe that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but like, I think, I think we're looking at all these teams and like, like I'm looking here to Cincinnati, 15 and seven. Here we are. All right. Well, if they go nine and nine in the league and t- win 20 games in the best league in America, are we really leaving them out? So I think Cincinnati's definitely in a better spot than Kansas State. Um, it's funny. The USC loss might be a bad loss for um, Seton Hall as well as Kansas State. And I'm sure that we'll touch on Gonzaga, but their three wins being USC, Syracuse, and UCLA is hilarious too. Um, that's giving them absolutely nothing. But even like um, Kansas State's Miami loss is now a quadrant two, right? You mentioned the Villanova and Providence. I mean, both those teams might miss the tournament. Right. So kind of un, unlucky scheduling. I mean, kind of similar to Ole Miss where they beat Memphis and NC State and going to get nothing from that. Um, and then the win at Central Florida is probably going to be better than anyone anticipated. So there's a larger takeaway here because both of those leagues are the two leagues that are still playing 18 versus 20 league games. There's a larger takeaway here about scheduling in 2024. And I think it's fascinating that you see, and look, I think there's you know bigger picture changes that could come, but I think it's absolutely fascinating that all you hear about is, oh, you know, the, maybe the Big Ten could go to 22, or you, let, let's up up the number of league games that get played. You know, like what well, let's like like what, let's let's bring it all in house type of thing. But if tournament selection continues to exist like this, I don't know why anyone's playing 18. Or, excuse me, why anyone's not playing 18, right? Like, like if the difference for I'm – I'm trying to think of a team. All right, Big Ten. If, yeah, if the, the, half if the, the Big Ten, yeah. Right, if the difference for Northwestern between getting in the tournament and not is two more buys, then what in the world is Northwestern doing playing two extra conference games? Right. Like 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 if we just cut two games off Northwestern schedule and now that's six and five in the league, Northwestern needs two more wins. Well, that's the tough one, because like the Big 12 is so strong that you get so many more opportunities. Right. And those two extra games aren't going to hurt you. They're probably going to help you if and when they go to 20 games. With leagues like the Big Ten, like like Nebraska's finishing their schedule with seven teams that aren't making the tournament. You know, instead of playing a couple of quadrant two games, sub those out for quadrant fours and pick up those wins, and you don't really even need two extra quadrant two wins, you know. But I get what you're saying. And one, it might be a moot point when everybody goes to 20 games. And two, 
I mean, nine and nine versus ten and ten. I, I get that that makes a difference. You can see that with the Big East. Like teams used to get in at nine and nine all the time, and adding UConn and going to twenty games. I don't know if any team has gotten in with ten and ten since. Um, logically, it doesn't make a whole ton of sense, but that's certainly the pattern that we're seeing. So. Here's an interesting question in the Big 12. Lucas Harkins pointed out to me today that if you look at Torvik, there is a 57% chance that the Big 12 gets 10 or more bids. So 10 or 11, and I guess theoretically 12 if UCF is counted in the like truly you know, fringy bubble conversation, right? Mm-hmm. If Bovana were to offer you a line of over under nine and a half bids to the NCAA tournament for the Big 12, would you bet over or under? So over, absolutely. Okay. Without, without hesitation. Um, because the two teams that were questionable – at 9 and 10, were Texas and Cincinnati, and they both have these crazy road wins that other bubble teams probably can't match. And they would need, like, so both Texas and Cincinnati are both 4 and 5, right? Like, they would need an utter implosion to not make it. Both should, should make it at 7 and 11 with those types of wins. And a lot of these Big 12 teams were very savvy in playing a soft non-conference schedule, um, which will make their quantity of losses not be too high. And unlike the big, the big 10 and the big East right now, Houston and Kansas are giving out wins like crazy that Purdue and UConn aren't. So I think you're probably on the right side of this. Let me give my, let me, let me first give my just like big picture take on what I think should happen. What I think, and my problem that I have is that I truly do not believe, look, look, I'm not going to do these like anti-Ken Palm, anti-analytics diatribes that people seem to go on every day. But the root of all these Twitter beefs that I see, and people may not see them as much as I do because they're not as on, they're not online as much as I am. But there is a, a, a big narrative war basically right now of ACC people thinking their league is like hilariously disrespected and that like the middle of the ACC is not actually worse than all these other leagues middles. Cause that's really the root of the ACC not getting bids, right? It's the idea that, you know, beating NC state is a substantially less impactful result than beating Cincinnati. Right. The metrics absolutely adore BYU, Cincinnati, and to a lesser extent, Texas. I don't watch those teams and say, man, those teams are steps above the like bubble ACC, right? Like, like, I don't know what the results would be if you played it out 10 games, but like, I think if you gave me Virginia Tech, Miami, 
and Wake Forest against um, Cincinnati, Texas, and BYU. I think it's close to a toss-up, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. You, you, you can disagree with me. Right, but you just listed five, six, and seven in the ACC. Right. And I have the three Big 12 teams you listed at eight, nine, and ten. No, no, no. I'm not saying conference strength. So, 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 so to be clear, I think the Big 12 is better than the ACC. I guess my point is this. Why is Texas considered to have a great resume? Because they won on the road at since like their their three great wins are on the road at Cincinnati, Oklahoma, and TCU. I don't know how great any of those teams are. Right? Those are quote unquote elite road wins. Right? Cincinnati won at BYU. What does that mean? Like I don't know what it means. Like 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 look if if Cincinnati won at Allen Fieldhouse, I'd say sure. Right? Just like I say sure with South Carolina winning at Tennessee. Right? I don't view winning at BYU that way, but the metrics do. Right. And I think it'll, it'll be an interesting conversation to see how do we value a win on the road against a quote unquote top 20 10 Palm team or a top 20 net team who happens to go nine and nine in their league. Right. To me, well, that the, will be very interesting. The, the issue is there's no alternative. Right. Like you, you hear people all the time like, oh, well, they beat this team um, early in the year when they were still good and now they've tanked. They made like Memphis. Oh, we beat Memphis in November. Um, and now that win's not worth worth anything. That's not fair. You should do it at the time of the game or something. But that's impossible. It's completely subjective because there's going to be so little data to go off of early in the season. And that's the same here. We're, we're only playing 11 to 13 non-conference games, and half of those are by games. So there's going to be an un... Uh, I, I don't know if unfair is the word, but like a disproportionate impact to those games. And there has to be to, to evaluate what your conference is. The no only way. alternative would be to break off and stop with these buy games and have every team play comparable high major, like top 10 or 12 conference uh, teams in the non-league to get more looks against more comparable teams. Right? Like like Ken Palm knows people can say all day that oh beating Southeast Louisiana by fifty instead of thirty is meaningful. And and maybe the data shows that. But that's always gonna lend itself to um I guess hypothetical detractors, if that makes sense. So not to go too far down the rabbit hole here, but I think there's an interesting point to be brought up. We had a, con- I had a conversation uh, in a group chat with a bunch of really, I think, intelligent college basketball minds um, this week about Houston and how Houston was favored against Kansas. And, and Houston, I think we both agree, is like the ultimate example of the metrics rigor, right? Like here they are at number one in all the in all the numbers, despite the fact that like their actual accomplishments so far have been relatively minor, right? Like, I don't think when you watch Houston play against the best team of the country, you say Houston is the best team in the country, right? But for the preseason, look, looking at this roster, you're like, you're telling me that like, the best team in the country, the best player is LJ Cryer, who just transferred from Baylor. Like, are we are we serious? Jamal Shed, the blue guy point guard, because he's more than blue guy. But anyway, but yes, 
Houston, Houston is high in the metrics because they beat Louisiana Monroe 84 to 31 and they beat Stetson 79 to 48 and they beat Montana 79 to 44 and they beat Rice 75 to 39, right? That, that, that is driving their metrics. And, you know, obviously individual games, Texas Tech by 23, that's a big, you know, big, big ass result, right? Like winning at BYU, that's a result on, on the metrics front. I mean, that's a game they're probably, you know, basically a pick in, right? But Houston, Houston is seemingly being overvalued by the metrics when they play against elite competition because they are so dominant against non-elite competition. And something that, um, and I don't want to spoil too much because obviously he's doing his own work, whatever. But something that uh, Evan Miyakawa, who is is working on, who's you know one of the you know bright young analytics minds in in, in the country, um, Evan is working on tweaking formulas to basically be able to account for that more, right? Like how can we create an analytic and create, create metrics that better account, better, better limit the impact of blowing teams out or more, more properly weigh how good you are against elite teams versus how good you are against non-elite teams or how good you are against really bad teams versus, you know, regular teams. Right. And I think it'll be interesting to see what the advancements are on that in the next several years, because I think it will shape. I mean, look, these metrics are so important to not only, you know, NCAA tournament selection, but just like how teams are viewed throughout the sport. And I think it'll be very interesting to see over the next several years how those numbers change and their impact on the sport as a whole. Right. Because I think there's an approach right now that has become very prevalent. Like, all right, let's blow everybody out as much as we can. But like, I wonder if we don't go backwards a little bit and we start, you know, if, if we wind up in a, a more strength of record centric world, do we see more teams playing quad threes instead of quad fours when they're buying games? Do we see more, um, you know, more teams schedule harder out of conference, right? Like, like I have no idea, but I think it's interesting because I don't know quite know how to, how to address these issues. I just think like, I think my eyes tell me a slightly different story than the numbers right now with some of these teams, particularly in the Big 12, uh, where the schedules and the non-conference were so late. That's my kind of overarching take, and then we can move on. Well, so I think my overarching take would be, one, if the data shows that beating the, beating the crap out of teams is the best indicator of future success, then changing that it's kind of missing the point, even though it a you know re- reasonable people. I'm sure more, more people than not would say it doesn't matter if you beat a team by 50 versus 30 at the end of the day. But if the data shows that it does, then I I, I guess we have to you know keep, either keep that in mind or stick with it or whatever. And I think secondly is the the I I don't know if tweaking the formula is going to do anything just because the sample size is so small you know like 30 games that's that's not a ton of data and especially when we're talking mid-season you know teams have only played 20 games 23 games at this point so and then in terms of the overall scheduling like we saw with memphis this year and now memphis screwed up with their easier conference schedule but they play like three bye games and they won enough that their strength record was super high. But that'll cut the other way. If you do that in a power conference, you'll end up with 16, 17 losses and kind of miss a tournament by default. So unless they can change 
the whole schedule of the sport and just knock out these quadrant four games altogether. I think we're, we're just stuck with what we have and it, it, and it might be the best way moving forward. But. All right, let's move on. Um, I wanted, do, do you have any other big things you wanted to hit big 12 and sec related before we get out of the South? How about Johnny Furphy? He's unbelievable. Gonna be an NBA prospect now. <laughs> yeah, I think he's one and done at this point. The uh, Kansas wing train is is unbelievable. Look, I, I I that's the only reason I would question whether he should go one and done. To be honest, right? Like he could probably be a top twenty pick and spend next year in the G League and develop, right? It you know whatever. But I kind of look and I'm like, man, like how good is he? How good is he? Has he gotten over the last month? What happens if we give him a year? Right, like think about what Oche Agbaji did. Think about what Jalen Wilson did. Right, like Kevin McCuller. Right, I mean, you look through every year, their wings get better. And, and I know even the, the wings that aren't that next, good get drafted. Right. I know the draft next year will be harder, but like part of me thinks Johnny Ferguson can be like a top five to ten pick if he comes back. I don't know how much harder it's going to be. Like it's going to be harder at the top with Cooper Flag and Cooper Flag and Kaman Malawatch. Um, and Ace Bailey. There's still not a ton of five stars. Like I think I saw on three had like 14 five stars. And I know for 2025, the 24-7 guys were like, yeah, we have 11 five stars, but it really should be like six five stars right now. So yeah, I guess we'll see on that front. Um, Jordan Sperber had a nice video on Houston. Yes. And it inspired me. You know how last week I was like, you know what? I don't know what the pack, pack line defense is, and I don't care. Before next pod, I'm going to watch this YouTube video on what the pack line defense is. Seven minutes long. See, because I, I never played defense in my life. My high school coach said I had the worst closeout he's ever seen. Um, I know the pick and roll coverages. And I know help side defense. But we would always play like a, a man-to-man that would get shredded, and then we'd just sit in like a 2-3 matchup zone. Um, so my defensive, both knowledge and interest is limited. The, the uh, offenses I know, but for next week, I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn the pack line defense, everybody. Give myself more credibility. Um, all right. I want to talk UConn. Uh, I know we've got many different areas we can go in the Big East, but I think UConn, and look, maybe this will get negated here if they don't finish the job against Butler tonight. But Up four right now. I mean, the way they played against St. John's over the weekend was incredibly impressive, especially without Caravan, who's so important, especially with Donovan Klingon in foul trouble. Like, everyone and their brother was saying, oh, this is the time to bet. You know, Patino, I did, and lost a little money at Bovada. I was like, man, like, like Patino at home, big win, opportunity, no caravan. This is the time. And, and Danny Hurley shut us up. What, what an incredible win for them. What an incredible job he has done. Like, there isn't a lot of history of a team losing what they lost and going from, you know, championship team to contending again. Right? Like, I'm trying to think of another example. I guess, like, you know, Kansas last year, but, like, I think Kansas always felt a little softer. Like UConn feels 
I, I personally disagree with UConn being the number one team in the country right now. I think it should be Purdue, just because I think resume-wise, Purdue's resume is incredible. But, I mean, UConn is very clearly one of the two best teams in college basketball right now, which is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I don't have a great memory for that sort of question of, like, all, all these past years. But I do remember Virginia with their 16 snafu and then championship. I think they lost, what, Devin Hall and then one other guy. Um, so, so, like, an, you know, maybe one and a half fringe NBA players. Um, it, it, the crazy thing about UConn is they didn't really portal that hard. They got Cam Spencer. Yeah. Um, and that's basically it. They, they, they have a nice freshman class, but Ball and Stewart don't play a ton. Castle plays, obviously. Um, they've done it with internal improvement. Tristan Newton... Alex Caravan and sneakily Hassan Diara, um, who has elevated his game from, you know, last year he was the ninth man in the rotation. By the end of the year, they they cut him off the rotation entirely, and now he's hitting threes. He's making plays. He can play three different positions. He's tough. Great defense. Um, and I agree with you. I think I put them number two right now behind Purdue, and they're. Far and away the best team in the Big East. They got to give up some equity. They got to hand out some wins here, or else the Big East might be looking at four bids uh, come March. Um. So I guess the thing that I would say that's so wild about Hurley is probably until last year, but certainly like while he was at Rhode Island. Think about how prevalent the narrative was. was like Dan Hurley was a recruiter who couldn't coach. Like people at Rhode Island, like we're like, ah, whatever, you know, like he's, you know, this guy always under. Yeah, it took him like three or four years to win with that core of EC Matthews and Jared Terrell and Hassan Martin. It's it's fascinating to me. It really is. Um, so good for him. He's done an incredible job. Uh, would you have them or Purdue number one right now? I I still think Purdue number one. Ed is just such a monster. Look, I, I think Braden Smith is like an elite point guard. Like honestly, to me, anyone like like it, that's become like my easiest test for like do you actually watch college basketball? It's like if you think that Braden Smith, like if you're like, oh yeah, like what about their guards? Then I just like, all right, you don't actually watch games. Well, it's not Smith and Lawyer, it's Smith and Jones. Lawyer's fine. I mean, Lawyer shoots 43 from three and just like doesn't screw up. He's a complete afterthought, though. It's Lance Jones has completely yes. u- usurped him. And Lance Jones wasn't even a top 100 transfer. The uh, transfer rankings were kind of crazy. There's just there were too many comparable players that like the rankings need to be like the top 300 and tier them. The other thing is it's like are they being ranked based on how good they were at their previous spots or how good they will be, right? I'm not convinced that like if you I'm trying to think of like a good like a, a comparable situation that like Lance Jones could have been put into, like. You mean like if you put Lance Jones? On UConn instead of Stefan Castle? 
No, no, no. I, I, I think it's out of transfer. So, like, so, so for instance, I'm just thinking this because of Sienna, right? So, JV and McCollum was a top 100 transfer on Borzellus rankings. JV and McCollum has been quite good for Oklahoma, right? Yeah. I think you'd probably argue that Lance Jones, but a bit more impactful overall. But, like, if you put Lance Jones in the JV and McCollum role at Oklahoma, which is basically what his role was at Southern Illinois, like a lower efficiency, shot creator, generator, whatever. Like if you put Lance Jones in that role, he would probably be a lot worse. Like he would, I think he'd be closer to like Jordan Goldwire than he would be to like Javian. So I think a lot of it's just fit. I think a lot of it is just random circumstance. Like remember Alondis Williams who was at Oklahoma, the glue guy, and then he goes to Wake Forest and he's an NBA player. It's well, just, every like, every guard becomes an NBA player when they play for uh, play for Steve Forbes. And I mean, that's the whole crux also behind right, like the Butler and South Carolina breakouts this year. It's like they just got three mediocre transfers on paper, and then it turns out like, oh, BJ Mack and I guess Mac had some hype, but like Taylon Cooper and PJ Mac are actually pretty good, and Miles Studi. And for Butler, it's you know in the preseason, I was like this team is a joke. Posh Alexander is their best player, and Posh is basically what we thought he was, but Davis, Telford, and Brooks are all way better than what we thought and better than Posh. So then Posh is your fourth best player, and that's that's fine. They basically didn't swing and miss at all. Right, like screen is like a competent backup center. Landon Landon Moore is like a good backup guard. DJ Davis is a starter. Pierre Brooks is a star. Jamil Telford's a star. Posh is a starter. Like everybody they got, like is good enough. I mean, like what are the odds of that? Like thinking about the transfer portal. Think about the teams that are trans. Like there's a lot of teams that are like, all right, that guy was a bit of like even teams that did well. Like Oklahoma did quite well, but. You look at Oklahoma and you're like, yeah, you know, like great job with Jalen Moore and JV McCollum, but like, you know, Latrey Darktard was kind of a bust, and like Rivaldo Suarez wasn't as good as we thought he'd be, and you know, they're basic, you know, like they got nothing from like a top 50 kid and Caden Cooper, like Butler basically had no misses. And you know, watching that game on Friday against Creighton, that was that was such a good game. Um, Posh was out, and at one point, the lineup in like crunch time that Thad threw out there was like it was like Landon Moore, Finley Bizjack, Jamil Telford, Augusto Cassia with his first second his first first half minutes of the season, um, and Bowden Kapke. So he had like three freshmen out there who don't, who don't play a ton, the backup point guard, and then they're probably their best player in Telford. Like that's like an un, unreal amount of uh, stability, right? Get guys stepping up. Like I, I couldn't imagine half the teams in the country rolling out their what their best player with their seven through ten. Um. Yeah, it, it's nuts. So, um, speaking of Thadmata. I did want to get to his former school, Ohio State. Can we just stay in the in sure. in, in the Big East yeah. for thirty we'll seconds? Talk Ohio State. Yes, go ahead. 
the underrated thing about DePaul is that they are so bad that playing them, playing the 300th ranked DePaul is raising everybody's metrics. Like, they get beat so bad that everybody covers against them. Right, like Louisville last year was so bad, but they were, like, putting dents into people. DePaul's like, oh, oh, the spread was 20 and a half. Okay, here's a 29-point win. Insane. The thing that's particularly crazy about about all of this with DePaul is, like, there is a floor, like, there, like, the only thing that is providing them a floor of how how low they can go in Ken Palm is the fact that they started at 113. They've gone from 113 to 301. Like, uh, I mean, like how, how many I, I don't know if there's a floor. I mean, everyone is covering. I mean, that means they move down every every week. Yes, I'm. I think I don't think they can go below like 320 though. Like there are 20... some teams that are getting crushed by, you know, they're getting crushed by the 200th ranked team instead of the 30th ranked team. Correct, and it just there's just there's just room you have to move down. Plus, like they're 20, like the dog in, in number is improve is increasing. They're 27 point projected dogs against Marquette. They are 23 point dogs against Xavier. Like like at some point, like, the the floor like they can't they can't go any further because even if they lose by forty, they're only missing by thirteen points. But like I do wonder like how many games. I wish there was a way you could do this. Like how many games would it take DePaul to play where you could get them to three hundred and sixty three? It probably would take a long time because like there's some teams down there that are rough. But it could could come down to Georgetown at DePaul. It's true. If Georgetown blows them out, that could that could really put a dent. But it is because Georgetown's also a funny case where when you play Georgetown at home, they keep it close, knock you down five, seven spots, right? Mm-hmm. When you play at Georgetown, you blow them out and you get those spots back. They look at Butler, right? Home they won by like eight points. Road they won by like what thirty-four. Same with Marquette. It's going to be the same with Xavier and Seton Hall coming up, too. Yeah, DePaul is, DePaul is a real direct. Uh, DePaul is now lower than Chicago State and Ken Palm, which is pretty great. And I think, I think we'll save any uh, repetitive Georgetown talk for a little bit later in the season. Yeah, everybody wants to talk about Georgetown every time they get blown out. I don't really have takes. It is what it is. Um, yeah, I wanted to get to the Big Ten. I wanted to start with Ohio State. So I texted you during the game. I also texted a couple of kind of, um, not to say you're not important, Brad, but some like I texted some important people the same thing I sent you of like I kind of think Indiana just has to bite the bullet and fire Woody this year and go get Dusty May. And then Indiana rallied, came back from 18 down, beat Ohio State 76-73 in Columbus. Monster game from Malik Renu, monster game from Trey Galloway. Um, Anthony Leal played 26 minutes. It's like beyond crazy. Um, but just a complete calamity for Ohio State. Ohio State now losers of eight of nine, five in a row. Um, 
have just completely fallen off a cliff in conference play for his second straight season. And I think it's pretty much the point of no return for Chris Holman, which I mean, we, we targeted their four game stretch. That was like, this is going to define their season. Like they're not dead yet. We'll see how they do in these four games. Let me pull up what the four games actually were. Um, Spoiler alert, they went 0-4 in those games. Um, but it was... Was that at Nebraska, at Northwestern, home Illinois, at Iowa? Yes. And they were not particularly close in any one except for at Iowa. Correct. They got blown the doors off by Northwestern. Like... So and, now they, I... and then they lose at home to Indiana. and doesn't get much easier. I mean, I guess Maryland's not crazy. Um, they're probably comparable with Ohio State. But then you get Wisconsin and Purdue and Michigan State, three of the next four games. So it's not it's not going to get easier. The bottom can really continue to fall off. And it will be interesting. I mean, they're yeah, like they're going to lose to Maryland. They're going to lose. They're, they're going to even if they beat Maryland, they're going to lose Wisconsin, lose Purdue. Like yeah, this is they're going to finish seven and thirteen at best, probably in the Big Ten. And I just don't think they're going to be able to bring bring back Chris Holman. So some interesting things with that. Number one, the buyout is substantial. Something like $14 million. That is a lot of money. Like that is a college football buyout, not a basketball buyout. Ohio State has the money to do it. I would imagine they will have to do it. They will be Their hand will be forced because this team is just not any good. Um, who makes the decision? Gene Smith, the AD, is on his way out. Um, new AD, Roth Bjork, does not start until July. He could obviously has a hand in the search while he's at Texas A&M, but you know, that's a complicating factor. Gene Smith is the one who gave Chris Holman this extension. Um, also, I think an interesting factor here. Look at this roster. It is right for the picking. The Vultures are going to be circling in a major way, right? I mean, you've got Bruce Thornton, who... You know, despite his flaws, would be, you know, a top 15 to 20 player in the portal. Roddy Gale would be a very highly regarded player in the portal. Um, Zed, Zed Key, Key, who's not even playing. Yeah. Very Zed much. Key, your guy. Yeah. He, uh, pe- people are going to be knocking down his door in the portal. Right. He's just a plug and play, like starting rotation big and a high major. Felix Akpara, same deal. If he goes. Right. Anyone would take a bounce back on Devin Royal or Scotty Middleton or, you know, even Tyson Chapman, who hasn't played at all. Like like these this roster is going to get picked over unless the new coach is able to keep some guys. And the other thing that's interesting, I mean, this is a this is a four million plus job. Right. This is a high, high level position that will that will target high level candidates. I think Sean Miller will be a name that gets a lot of attention here. Uh, Obviously, ties to the state. Um, Bennett Xavier, you know, history at Arizona. Like, I think Sean Miller is 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 a is a guy there. I know we've talked about Greg McDermott potentially being a candidate there. He was he was in there in the past. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways this could go, right? I mean, look, I wouldn't rule out like a Chris Collins. Chris Collins make two NCAA tournaments in a row at Northwestern. Like, I could see him being in the mix. Like, I think, look, there. I don't think this is a job that you can hire like Josh Schertz at, right? And maybe I'll be proven wrong and Josh Schertz will go to the Sweet 16. Like I, I don't think Josh Schertz is getting like a, an elite job this year. And I don't even know, like, 
Like, I don't think like Nico Medved can get Ohio State. Maybe he can, right? Like, you need like a, he needs a hook though, right? Like, like I think how about this? Like, I think if they made the tournament, I think Drew Valentine could get Ohio State, but I don't know that they can make the tournament. And that would be very like Todd Goldeny, right? It's very it's very like projection based. Well, I mean, with you know the Ohio State and Louisville and kind of the, the jobs that are high major but like a step above in terms of who they can pull. That's why they always pull from the Big East. Right. The Big East doesn't have the football money, and it, it, it's a high major, so you got that knowledge that you know that they can win at a high level. Um, but, it, you know, Chris Holman hasn't really worked out. Chris Mack didn't really work out. It's funny, we know that they wanted Greg McDermott instead of Chris Holtman. I wonder how that would have worked out. Um, I think Greg, Greg McDermott's a better coach, but, I mean, Holtman did great things at Butler. So um, we'll see if they go back to the Big East well. Both them and, and Louisville. Like, Sean Miller should be number one on both their lists. Um, I guess we'll see, though. But, I mean, I I think Sean Miller might be the second-best coach in the conference behind patino he's better than dan hurley i think so i feel like that's a hot take it wasn't until april 4th of last year yeah but like winning a national championship (laughs) they won the national championship and they're number one okay you know sean just Popped up and brought Xavier to a Sweet 16 without breaking a sweat. And this year they lost half their team to injury. And Xavier's not dead yet. They're they're in a better spot than people realize. And plus what he did at Arizona. That's true. But I mean, Hurley's a great coach. McDermott's a great coach. Look, I look this way. If you think Sean Miller is not a great coach, if <laughs> Kyle Neptune is not a great coach, let, let me put it this way. If you think that Sean Miller is better than Dan Hurley, you should absolutely hire him at Ohio State. Let's put it that way. Which is what I suggested for them. So, so. We're, we're on the same page. All right. Um, other teams in the Big Ten to mention. I don't really know there's a ton. I mean, Indiana, like, like I mean, I, I will say the one name I would mention at Ohio State, which kind of is tied to the Indiana point, is, is Dusty May, um, which I think, I do think Dusty is going to continue to kind of hover over there at Indiana, just because, look, like, even they won today, like, they're going to probably finish under 500 in the league. They're probably going to have their worst 10 palms since early cream. I don't really think Indiana's going to make a move. I, I think my gut says they have to stick it out with him. But... I will say this. If you let Dusty May go to Ohio State, or you let Dusty May go to Michigan, or you let Dusty May go to West Virginia, and he turns out to be a dude, he turns out to be a guy who could take you to a Final Four, win a national championship, and you missed him because you wanted to give Mike Woodson a, you know, a, a second act, that is a good way to get fired as an AD. Right? And look, so many of these moves are are made out of kind of rational self-interest. 
I don't think that's going to go away. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think it's going to go away. Maybe I'm I'm a big proponent of looking for the future, like saying Oregon State should have fired Wayne Tinkle after the you know 30 seconds after the Elite Eight game ended in the bubble. But Woodson, I think he's overall exceeded expectations. I mean, okay, but three years with the expectations were terrible. Right, like two tournaments in three years. And they have so much money, they should be able to get it back on track. No matter how bad this year goes. They were legitimately really good last year. Four seed in the NSA tournament. Um he's just he's a very mediocre coach. And when they hired him, this is exactly what I said was gonna happen. I said he's gonna do fine. He's not gonna reach their expectations and they're gonna fire him. And he's probably better than Archie Miller. But for the most part, Archie Miller did fine as well. I think that that was another one of those, right, where the COVID year, the COVID no tournament, they were good, but that got wiped away. Do I have that right? Yes. And Tom Tom Green won a lot there, and they ran him out too. Is this, like at some point, (laughs) how many times are we going to do this? In in the past, when teams have made the tournament and then dumped their coach, hasn't always worked well, right? There was the whole UCLA-Minnesota game with Ben Howland versus Tubby Smith, and they said, oh, the loser's going to get fired, and they fired both of them. It hasn't worked out. And then after Howland, they had Alford, who they didn't like, and fired him. And Minnesota had Patino, who they didn't like, and fired him, uh, both having huge success in the Mountain West. So it's, you know, and then Maryland's kind of doing the same thing where, you know, they said, oh, Turgeon, we just need a change. And they're hiring Kevin Willard. And it's like, you should have just kept Mark Turgeon. Like, Willard's not, not any better than Turgeon. And now they're all upset. No one's going to their games after Willard's first bad year, after they were pretty good last year. So time, time is a flat circle. Maryland feels like a very fickle fan base. Uh, I, mean, I will the, say this: the guy's I, second year, they made the turn. They won a game in the tournament last year. What so I watched. So I watched a little bit of uh, Maryland versus Rutgers today. Yeah. And as soon as I turned it on, the broadcast said, "You know, numbers may not reflect it, but Jamie Kaiser is like a really high-level shooter." And you know, you know, it's not great when they had to say they oh, the numbers don't reflect it. So I looked up that how bad the numbers were. Jamie Kaiser is shooting 24% from three and 23% from the field. The Garway. All, all these four-star freshmen that were supposed to be reliable are. I mean, Deshaun Harris-Smith, another one who, who struggled. Oh, my God. He has been horrific. They lost the game. So So Maryland built all this momentum – they, they've been down nine. Uh, Derek Simpson got teed up. They go on a 6-0 run. They have the ball down by three with a minute and, like, 50 seconds to go. And Julian Reese dribbles into a double team, jump passes out of it to a wide open Deshaun Harris-Smith in the corner. Like, have to shoot it. But Deshaun Harris-Smith is nine for 56 from three this season, 
So he just like pump fakes and then like gives it up. And then Jamie Kaiser just throws a pass completely out of bounds. And it's like, well, that's the game. That's Maryland. They cannot score at all. So, look, I, I mean, think think about those those two guys in Maryland. And, and I saw Harris Smith play in high school. And I, I was not a believer as a one and done guy at all. Um, but yeah, those two, all the UCLA guys, you know, Bronny James, you know, the the uh, last year I was thinking about making a campaign to bring back the four star freshman. Everyone had forgotten about the four star freshman. Um, it turns out, I think people are right. The four-star freshman stinks. I don't really know how that happened, but any four-star freshman that needs to be relied on, I guess except for like Reed Shepard, they all stink. Um, it is kind of wild, yeah. I mean, I guess, like, Sebastian Mack has been okay, I think. I know he was great at the start, and then I think he tapered off. Um, but, like, Garway is horrible. Like, it just pains me. I don't know. I I need a, an explanation from Sam Vecini as to yeah. what he was thinking and well, how the Sam draft... Vecini, so, Sam Vecini is only in the country for, like, seven days a year. So... The fact that he came to the U.S. and saw Garway have a good game at the Hoop Summit, he just, I think, must have assumed that Garway duel was, like, the best player ever because that's all he'd seen. And all the amateur draft Twitter guys had Garway at least top ten. Some had them, like, third overall. Crazy. He he can't do anything. It's unbelievable. He's unplayable. I honestly don't don't care if he comes back next year. Um, I think you probably want him back because he's so high, highly rated and has a high upside, but um, I'm sure he's very expensive. That money could probably be used better elsewhere. And he should just go to Santa Clara, which now I've only watched like three Santa Clara games this year, uh, but Adama Ball does not feel like an NBA player to me, and everyone is pushing him to the NBA. I'm just going to sit this one out because I said this about Pods, and Pods turned into a very good NBA player. So, Well, he when a ball gets his first-round pick this year, Garway should go to Santa Clara and be the next uh, – the, the, the fourth in the line of succession of consecutive Santa Clara point guards. Let's see. Other ground to be covered. Kentucky. Gonzaga. Or, Gonzaga, yeah. Let's, do, let's like, see. We can do Kentucky and Gonzaga together because they play with them. So Gonzaga's in trouble, right? Um, the fans were throwing stuff on the floor. Providence fans would never do that. No felonies. <laughs> that, that, that was funny because it came right after a blown call. Um, yeah. So, like, when uh, Providence fans threw stuff on the court, it was just kind of, like, random. Um this was like a coordinated, like, refs, you screw up, we're throwing our beer at you. Um, but yeah, the refs completely lost control of the game. They, like, went to the, they called a phantom foul, and they went to the monitor to, like, figure out who to assess the foul to. Um, but Gonzaga doesn't look that good. They really need steel vendors or any wing that they can play. They played the three bigs together. Which well, Lembard just, just probes all the time. He doesn't get anywhere. Talk about a lose-lose transfer situation. 
Brian Nemard, at this point, I think it's safe to say they're probably not in, in, in the NCAA tournament. They'll, they'll, they'll have a great shot at the auto bid. Right. Um, but it's 50-50 at best. And if he were on Creighton, Creighton would be humming. Even though Ashworth's playing better now, but... Yeah, I, I noticed that Ashworth scored in double figures like six or seven straight games. But yeah, Gonzaga has at Kentucky this weekend. They have at San Francisco and then at St. Mary's. Definitely need two of those at least. Yes. The San Francisco game is also interesting. Uh, I was corresponding with a source. So the San Francisco game is being played on a technically neutral court. Being played at the Chase Center where the Warriors play. So the question is, will that game be classified as a road game for Gonzaga or not? I'm sure Gonzaga would like it to be. However... Same areas are, excuse me, San Francisco already played one game this season at the Chase Center against Minnesota, and that was classified as a neutral. So I don't know how you could have the same venue count once as a road game and once as a neutral. I agree. Which so that could be a, that could be a pretty big deal. And uh, like like we said earlier, like their big wins are literally USC, UCLA, and Syracuse. And they have the Santa Clara loss, which is, isn't bad. I think it's like on the cusp of being bad, but um, it's a pretty blank slate. And they've made the tournament, what, 20-something straight years? Let's uh, give give someone else a chance. Let's get Kyle Smith in there. Let's get Thad Mata in there. And uh, Gonzaga can set this one out. Well, in order to avoid that fate, they probably need to beat Kentucky over the weekend, who... Is sneakily in like a little bit of free fall. Um, maybe not sneaky in that everyone is talking about it, but I will say their resume is like pretty bad. Kentucky's beaten three tournament teams: North Carolina on neutral, amazing win at Florida, okay win, home Mississippi State, okay win. They just won at Vanderbilt tonight, which is big. But like, there's a world where Kentucky's like a seven or an eight, maybe even like a nine seed. They don't finish well. And that's they were so a six seed scary. last year, yeah. That's so scary if they're like not better than like a six seed. Like they're they were they're so dangerous talent wise, but I mean defensively they are horrible. It's all Dillingham. It, well, not all Dillingham, but well, I also Mitchell it, it, and, yeah. one of the many interesting notes that is in Jordan Sperber's newsletter every week. He did some film on Kentucky. He said that the interesting thing about he says he, he has had a, a long-standing point that like grading defense is much harder than just like looking at steal and block rate. And he was like, Reed Shepard gets credited as being like an elite defend defender because he has like an elite steal rate and a very high block rate for a guard. But if you actually watch Reed Shepard defensively, like in the Florida game, he gave up 25 points. So Reed Shepard, maybe not as good a defender as you think. Dillingham's a terrible defender. Aaron Bradshaw seems like a terrible defender. So I think they're playing a lot more Onyenso. But, I mean, they're small. They don't play They play fast, so there's a lot of, like, wasted possessions and, like, lack of effort. It's kind of – it's it's really quite, kind of interesting. 
Yeah, for, for me, I I evaluate defense based on one viewing. How how quickly do they move their feet on defense? Like my guy Deontay Miles. Oh, you love Deontay Miles. Starting center for the Ohio Valley leader Moorhead State. Moorhead State, especially in that league, being top 100 in Ken Palm or close feels kind of wild. They're 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 110th in Ken Palm. They're like 99 in the net. Because they have this even great defensive lost, center. Even though they lost the league's player of the year in the preseason, uh, Mark Freeman, uh, like a week before the year to an injury. Yeah, Moorhead is 110 right now in Ken Palm. Yeah, I mean, good, good for good for them. How about this? Preston Spradlin is 37 years old. He's he, he'll he'll have won 20 plus games in four straight years after this season. He's and he's 20 20 or 37 years old. Wow. So somebody's gonna hire him eventually. We have some weird teams in the top 100. I mean, UMass is sneaky top 100. I wouldn't have realized that. UMass is really good. UMass is my team that, like, I'm convinced is really good. UMass has lost, like, three games, like, completely at the death, where, like, if you flip those results, they're, like, close to an at-large team. You have Appalachian State, who I I knew that they were good. Um, obviously not in the preseason, but, I mean, before opening Ken Bomb today, I knew that they were good. I bring them up because that was like maybe the cheapest quad one game ever was Auburn at App State and they blew it. Especially when they were sitting there with no quad one wins for a while. Yeah. Um, we touched on Richmond last week. How crazy that is. How about the Ivy? Cornell's right outside. Yale's in it. And I think Princeton is. Yeah, yeah Princeton's at 64. Irvine's at 71. McNeese, Will Wade's going to stay there five more years, right? Good luck. Will Wade just needs Ole Miss to open. He needs Chris Beard to get a job. And then he can get Ole Miss. Villanova's still hanging in the top 40. It's crazy. This is such like a magnetism to, to the analytics. <laughs> It is so tough to fall unless you're Memphis and you just Well, I implode. especially if you're not blowing teams out, right? Like if you're just losing if you're getting if you're not getting blown out and you're not blowing teams out, you just kind of like stick around. Like like Loyola for instance. I know there's been like some frustration there. Like Lo- Loyola was 126 on December excuse me, they were 135 on December 19th when they woke up and they um, were six and five after losing to, to South Florida by 13. Since then, Loyola is nine and two. They've beaten St. Joe's on the road, UMass, beat uh, you know two other A10 road wins. Like they've accomplished some shit, and their two losses are by like a combined nine points, and they've moved up a grand total of 20 spots in Ken Pop. Like they haven't moved. They were, they were, they were 123 before playing Richmond. They're 115 now, just by going five and two in the A-10. 
That's you crazy. just can't. You don't move. You don't do it. You, if you if you're winning these close games, you don't move enough. Doesn't that, help that they lost early to UIC. They got they tanked 20 spots. Or how about this? Loyola dropped 40 spots in two games by losing to UIC, who turned who at the time looked okay and now looks awful. Uh, and then only beating New Orleans, who's 336 by three. Both of those games, Loyola was without two of their best players, uh, Jaden Dawson and Phil Alston. They dropped 40 spots for that, and they've been like chasing to recover ever since. It's crazy. I mean, Utah and Villanova and Clemson before tonight, you know, you just get to a certain point, or BYU is probably the biggest example. And you just you just can't move, um, and and there's nothing nothing that can be done, as we discussed earlier with the the ratings. I I guess we'll see if Evan uh, Miyakawa uh, can come up with a new formula for it, but we'll see. Um, six bid Mount West is on right. If a Nevada can hold on here. I think Nevada's still got a lot of work to do. get some work to do, but this would be a big one, right? I mean, that, but look, that's the league, right? Like, if you're going to, if you're going to accomplish something, you need some of these, some of these kind of quirky results, steal a road win. I also think Utah State is like fraud wash and coming. It just hasn't happened yet. So maybe today is the beginning of that. All these teams are fraud watch in the Mountain West. You're such a hater. Why can't New, you just enjoy nice things? These are all like good. New Mexico decent, is is the least fraudulent one of them all, I think, because their guards are so good. Like Toppin's having a nice year as a freshman. Can I Put can it, I inter- can I interest you in a team with maybe the best point guard in college basketball? Colorado State. Yeah, and Nick Clifford, who's really fucking good. What about your guy Braden Smith? Braden Smith's elite, but Isaiah Stevens is as good as there is. Dude, I was so I was so mad that they didn't put Devin Carter on the shooting guard list and they put Boogie Ellis. That is crazy. Was he on the small forward list or is that no. not out yet? No, he wasn't on was not on any of the lists. It's absurd. People don't know how to position these guys. It's terrible. It was the same with Mark Sears too. He it is wild there. it is wild though that you just said Oh, you know, like Nevada with six bid Mountain West is back on. Nevada is currently eighth in the Mountain West. Like they woke up this morning eighth in the Mountain West. And you're like, yeah, you know, like here they come. Like, like what a world we live in. And the the American, I mean, Memphis with a buzzer beater saves their season to the point where if they can flip the switch back on, I guess they're in, right? Like like if they win the rest of their games, maybe just lose at Florida Atlantic. They can probably still make the tournament. Yeah. Uh, but that just feels so unlikely. And on the uh, Gary Parish uh, Norlander podcast, they're saying it all comes back to when they added Jordan Brown. I'm sorry, when, when they when they added Naquan Tomlin and then Jordan Brown quit and everybody's minutes got screwed up and the whole team imploded. It is fascinating. It really is. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with Memphis. I mean, they're lucky that they beat Wichita, as you said, kind of keeps them alive. It'll be interesting to see how they respond, but 
yeah, like there there's some sneaky opportunities out there. Like they play at SMU. Yeah, nice win. That's that's a sneaky win for Texas A&M. If you were wondering why they're still in the mix. Opening week at Ohio State at SMU, both uh, Quadrant 1 wins for now. Yeah, I was going to say how long is Ohio State sticking? Well, the last year their 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 metrics were super sticky. That's true. To a comical point where they were the poster child of what's wrong with the net. Um, in, in the eyes of aggrieved fans, but I don't know where they are right now. Probably going down after losing at home to Indiana. Anything else we really want to get to today? I feel like we've covered most of it. More search season stuff? Do you have uh, anything else? I mean, I've got lots of stuff. Not sure how I much. I saw that Trilly trimmed his Louisville today. list. He cut Mick Cronin from it. He's sticking with Jerome Tang, Musselman, and uh, the third guy I can't think Chris of right now. Beard. It's it's crazy that they want Musselman out. That's just that is be that would be Jamie Dixon times a thousand. Look, I will say this: I may end up wrong in that, like one of those three guys may be the head coach at Louisville. But I think saying with confidence that those are the three guys right now is far too is far too aggressive. I think there's way more to be done there. I think there's a lot more names that could be in the mix and. And just those three. DePaul job, but they just last in line? I think so. I think Holtman could be a candidate there. That that one seems a little underwhelming. I think I I think I I, I would be fine with um there was another guy get getting fired who I was like, you know what, I think I'd be cool with him going to DePaul. Mike Boynton? No. Boynton, I saw uh, Trilly said they're going to keep him, but give him more NIL. <laughs> I think there's a decent chance he's got one more, but we'll see. You fail, and they'll reward you with more NIL money. Well, it's tricky, though. Look, I mean, you need to give a coach the resources it takes to win, right? Like, like the right, like that's, that's why I don't understand this fundraising thing. Again, I... My memory is shot. I don't remember what coach they were referring to, but they're like, oh, they hired so-and-so because he can fundraise NIL money. Like, shouldn't the boost, shouldn't the the millionaires be coming to you? Right? Like, they want the team to to be good. Shouldn't they be coming to you with their money? Like, why are you coaxing the NIL out of them? Well, Look, I think it's complicated. I think I think the thing that's, that's so so complex is you can't win without NIL money. But boosters are very fickle because they want control. They want certain guys to be the head coach. They want to feel like they're part of it, right? Like like so for instance, there was you know all this like mostly erroneous reporting out of Siena this past weekend. The burner accounts are really doing a bad job on Siena. Um that was like, oh, Sienna's going to fire Carmen Massarello because they didn't. The, the, the report was on this, like the boost, the NIL group is, you know, severing all ties to Sienna until Carm, uh, until until Carm is fired. So they had to fire Carm. 
And like the, the just like the the assertion is preposterous, right? Like we're not going to give money to have players because we think the because we want the coach fired because we're not winning. But you're not going to win, right? If you don't have players. You should give him the resources to have players next year. If you win, okay, he stays the coach. If you don't win, all right, now you can fire him and go get a new one. Like, it's so absurd. And I guess less so at, like, a Siena, but at a high major, you shouldn't be hiring these recruiting coaches anymore. Recruiting is the money. The money's going to trump the relationship. The recruiting so, – so, so I think the value of the new – the new age value of the, the quote-unquote recruiter – is Intel, right? Intel is the name of the game. You need to know who's going to be moving, when they're going to be moving, and what what the money will be to move. And I don't necessarily know that you can just like, like, I don't think you and I could become assistant coaches tomorrow and just be able, you know, you, you, you couldn't just like text, you know, I don't know. TJ like, Power and be like. Right, you couldn't just text so TJ Power and be like, what's the cost? And he'd be like, 250000 And you'd be like, okay. Like that doesn't work. You need intel and relationships. That makes it so much tougher for everybody. No doubt. Because TJ Powers' agent is, you know, taking the two hundred fifty to go. I don't know to School X when School Y has the booster willing to pay him three hundred. Nobody told them. Indeed. Sounds like the housing market. Sort of, yes. Yeah. I was like, wait, that house went for that price? I would have paid that. What the fuck? If only I had known. Should be an interesting carousel. Look, my big picture take on the carousel is this. I think this year will be very interesting in that I think you will have people who you, – you will have schools that pay buyouts you would not expect – to fire coaches because they need to be able to raise NIL money, right? Idea being, you know, they've, they've kind of, saw, the, the fan base is kind of done with this guy. Usually you'd stick it out with him, but, you know, you got to make a move to appease the boosters and have money for players. I think you're also going to have places that give a little bit longer leash to certain guys than they would have in the past because they'd rather invest the money in a roster than in a coach. Which makes perfect sense. Hundred percent. So, all right, folks. I think that wraps us up for the week. We will see you all next week with another episode as we get closer to March. Uh, just chugging right right along here. Uh, in the first week of February, already hard to believe.